Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 10 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. 9. Her eyes slowly open and focus on me. I can see it there, that unrepentant sense of righteousness. Jose Lorenzo, she replies softly the man whose dogs attacked Erica. I shake my head. You promised you wouldn't kill anyone else. No, she replies. You said we shouldn't kill anyone else. My head spins as the pieces fall into place. The guys weaken to get me out of the way. The girl's casino trip to serve as her alibi. The whole thing with Eddie Horn to throw me off the track. How could I have been so blind? She excitedly starts to tell me about it, as if she can't hold it in any longer. Amy and I planned every detail. We staked out his house, brought the dogs treats so they would get to know us, staged another car up near the casino so we could drive back and kill Jose while the casino's security camera had our car in their garage all night. You should be proud. I'm not, I reply. This is wrong. I can't wait till the next group when Wendy and Yule tell us how relieved they are to know that Lorenzo is dead. I shake my head. We can't go back to the group now. Someone's going to start asking questions. Barb is already getting suspicious. It was beautiful, she continues, oblivious to my horror. Amy and I came up with a wonderful plan. What plan? You remember that movie, Hannibal? The one with Anthony Hopkins, where the guy had trained pigs to eat people? There's a look of excitement in her eyes. Apparently, the guys who fight dogs use strays to train them. The scent of another dog drives them nuts. So Amy had the idea of making Lorenzo smell like a dog and then getting him into that kennel. Of course, we had to knock him out somehow. That was easy. The guy loved tequila, so we sent him a spiked bottle of the most expensive stuff we could find. Don't worry, we paid cash and got it at a place that sells cases of the stuff. I sit back, transfixed. She is animated, excited. I don't know this woman. Anyway, we got some surplus wetsuits, all black. I'm surprised you didn't think of that. Parked a few blocks away, waited till it was dark. We took alleys and stayed in the shadows until we got to Lorenzo's house. The front door was unlocked, so we just walked right in, and we saw him passed out on his couch. We looked around to make sure there wasn't anyone else in the house. The basement was set up for the dogfights, like one of those MMA cages, and we could see there was a ramp that led to a cellar door that connected to the kennels. Amy found the controls. He had those magnetic locks so he could open the gates to the kennels, let the dogs into a kind of staging area, then opened the doors to the cage so they could fight. The place smelled like stale blood and beer. 
Once we figured things out, we dragged Lorenzo down to the basement and put him in the cage. We threw in another tequila bottle, one that wasn't spiked, so it would look like he was just drunk and careless. Then Amy took out a bottle of dog pee she had collected. Don't ask me how. Anyway, we sprinkled it on him, and then for good measure wrapped some raw bacon around his neck. Rebecca revels in the details of their plan. I can see the excitement growing in her eyes as she continues. Amy opened the doors to the kennels. At first, the dogs didn't come in. We took some bacon and slipped it through the chain-link fence. I even tried meowing to see if that would get their attention. Eventually, we got them into the staging chutes. They started going nuts once they saw us, and even started turning on each other. So Amy opened the door to the main cage, and they rushed in. At first, they didn't know what to make of it. Then one of them sniffed around Lorenzo, then started licking the bacon around his neck. One of the other dogs tried to get at it, too, and that's when it got fun. The dogs started stepping all over him. Some of them must have noticed the smell of dog urine we put on him because they started ripping at his clothes. Then they started ripping at his flesh. Once they caught the scent of blood, they just went for it. I think I saw Lorenzo's eyes open just for a second, and he might have tried to scream, but the dogs had their jaws locked on his throat by that point, and he went limp. Once we knew he was dead, we cleaned up, you know, wiped down any fingerprints and stuff, then sneaked back out into the dark and made our way back into the alley. No one saw us. We got to the car, drove back to the casino, and played slots the rest of the night. She sighs smugly. It was perfect. I grab her by the shoulders, look her straight in the eyes. If I've learned anything in the last couple months, it's that there's no such thing as perfect. What if Vitaly's people were watching you? What if you went through a red light camera? What if someone at the casino noticed you weren't there when you say you were? All of my questions bounce right off of Rebecca's steely demeanor. She dismisses my concerns with a roll of her eyes and a wave of her hand. You worry too much. No one has caught on to us yet, and no one is going to. We were careful, just like you taught me. Taught her? Look, if it bothers you that much, I'll stop. Yes, it does. It bothers me that you're going around killing people after we decided it was over. Okay, okay, I get it. It's just that Amy and I wanted to help out Wendy. We know how she feels. So do I. It's not the same thing, she says. You're not a mother. What's that supposed to mean? I shoot back. Just because I wasn't the one who was pregnant, I can't feel the same loss? She shakes her head in frustration. Forget it. You wouldn't understand. She stands, wraps a sheet around her body, suddenly embarrassed by her nakedness. I can't think of a thing to say. She walks to the bathroom, slams the door behind her. A chill scurries down my spine. 10. The church sanctuary is empty. The doors are open when I walk up, so I go inside, not knowing what to expect, just needing a place to sit and think, maybe pray. It is almost noon. It's Monday, and instead of sitting behind my computer or checking the servers at work, I've been wandering the streets of my neighborhood, visiting some of Nick's favorite places, the parks where he played with his friends, the candy store where we went every Saturday, the hill we used to sled down in winter. At some point, I found myself at the church Rebecca and I had started going to a while back. We haven't been to any services since those first few. Our weekends have been otherwise occupied. And whether I ended up here consciously or not, I know this is where I need to be. I look around. The stained-glass windows cast a kaleidoscope of colorful shapes across the pews. Careworn Bibles and hymnals fill the nooks on the backs of the benches. The cross behind the altar is plain, unadorned. 
I bow my head, trying to put into perspective the consequence of my actions. I have been directly and indirectly responsible for the death of four people. Rebecca and I have both had close shaves with death ourselves. The fact that the police or the mob hasn't caught on to us yet is pure luck. I think of all the things I did wrong along the way, the most grievous of all, allowing Rebecca to become a part of it. My mind replays that phone conversation when we first decided that we were going to kill Vitaly. I wish now that I had just talked her out of it. Nothing we've done has brought Nick back. And now I'm here in this church, praying for forgiveness. That if there is a heaven, I haven't completely screwed up my chance to be with Nick again. My phone rings. I'm not sure which pocket I put it in, and it takes a few rings for me to find it. A middle-aged woman pokes her head in from a door to the side of the altar, shoots me a curious glance. I shrug an apology, then answer the phone. Hello? Who is this? The voice at the other end asks. Amy? I ask. I was trying to reach Rebecca. Did I dial the wrong number? I look down at the phone, realize that I grabbed Rebecca's by mistake. No, we must have gotten our phones mixed up. Oh, well, I just wanted to see when she wanted to reschedule our girls' weekend. Reschedule? Yes, is she feeling better? She sounded really sick when she called on Friday. My heart skips a couple of beats. I'm relieved to know that Amy wasn't a part of another murder. But then a curtain of dread falls around me, making it difficult to breathe. Rebecca killed Lorenzo by herself. What else did she lie about? Yes, she's much better now, I managed to say. Try back tonight. I'll make sure we get our phone sorted out. Okay, thanks. Bye, she says. Bye. I put the phone back into my pocket, stand and turn to leave. The pastor is at the back of the church, a smile on his face as he makes his way toward me. Ah, welcome, my son. It's good to see you again. Reverend, I say simply. It's been a while since we've seen you and your wife. Ex-wife. Oh, right. Sorry. I guess I'm an optimist at heart, hoping you might find reconciliation amongst your salvation. Me too, I offer, matching his smile. Were you just stopping in for a quick chat with the boss, or is there anything I can help you with? I guess just a quick chat. Well, I hope whatever it is, it works out for you. Thank you. And we'd love to see you both again on Sunday. We'll definitely try, I promise. We shake hands, and it seems as if he can see the turmoil in my mind. I must not be doing a good job of containing my fear and concern. God bless, he adds. Thank you. I hurry out without trying to seem to be in a hurry. Outside, the sunlight and warm air stifle me. My breathing becomes labored. The world starts to spin. I race toward some bushes, just as the remnants of my breakfast force their way out violently. I fall to my knees, and my real prayers begin. 11. I find my phone back at the apartment and leave Rebecca's on the nightstand from where I had grabbed it. There is a message waiting. I listen. It's from Eddie Horn. He wants to buy me lunch. Considering my breakfast had recently vacated my stomach, I call him back to accept. The phone rings immediately after I hang up with Eddie. It's my boss. Are you all right? Haven't heard from you today. I figured you were still sleeping off the weekend, he says. Yeah, I must have slept through the alarm. I meant to call. I was just finally able to get some sleep and just... Don't worry about it, buddy. Call the sick day. We'll see you tomorrow? Definitely, I answer. Great. Need to talk to you about something. Nothing bad, but it is important, so make sure you get your butt in here. I will. All right. Hide Rebecca for me. Will do. 
I hang up without waiting for a goodbye. I really don't even want to go back to work. I feel like everything outside of killing Vitaly that I've done over the last six months has been a shell, an exoskeleton I've outgrown and need to shed and discard. I set my alarm and lie down for a nap. Luckily, I don't dream. 12. Eddie is excited. He tells me about the death of the dogfight guy. I mentioned that I heard something about it on the radio, which I did. The details were thin, the newsworthiness limited to the fact that his dogs had been responsible for the death of a young girl. I have a source in the coroner's office, he tells me in a hushed tone. He looks around for anyone listening. No one seems interested in our conversation. He passed along some gruesome details. I know, of course, what he's going to say. How the man's own dog savagely ripped out his throat. Someone really did a number on him. Not what I was expecting. I display my genuine surprise. What do you mean? Well, when the cops first got there, they thought he had been attacked by his pit bulls. He'd been dead a couple days, and the dogs had really gone to town on him. Isn't that what happened? Once the medical examiner got the bastard on a slab and took a closer look, turns out the dogs had a little help. Some bacon left in the wound, I suppose to myself. Eddie checks his periphery again. Someone took a razor blade or something to the guy's neck, sliced the flesh to ribbons. Like I said, at least one of the dogs was hungry enough to dig in, but some of the cuts were still evident, and there was scoring on the vertebrae. Someone killed him and wanted it to look like the dogs did it. Eddie's words slip in and out of my consciousness, dancing with the story Rebecca told me and the revelation that Amy had not been there. I pictured Rebecca in her black wetsuit, slicing at Lorenzo's neck, a fiendish grin on her face. I imagine that her description of him waking up while he was dying is something she witnessed a little more directly than she had let on. Hey, buddy, sorry. Didn't mean to gross you out or anything. I return my attention back to Eddie, shake my head. No, I, I'm okay. Did a little too much partying over the weekend. Oh, Eddie nods. Listen, there's something else I really wanted to talk to you about. Just between you and me, okay? I nod. Sure. Well, you asked me to look into this guy and account that he got away with being responsible for the death of that little girl. Erica. Right. Well, it got me to thinking about Vitaly. How someone took him out and he, too, was responsible for the death of a child. I shrug. They were both scumbags. Sounds like coincidence. Yeah, I don't believe in coincidence. You and Mikey Manzanetti, I think to myself. So I did a little digging. There have been a couple other strange deaths involving people who were involved either directly or indirectly with the deaths of children. Damn. One was that woman, Sharon Dempsey. That was a domestic thing, I interject. Rebecca and I were up at my boss's house on that lake around the time it happened. Murder-suicide. Something about a lover? That's the official story. But I talked to some of the local cops, and there were some witnesses who say they heard a commotion on the Dempsey's dock around the time of the murder. Did anyone see anything? I asked nervously. No, but the deputy I spoke to said the spurned lover thing just didn't feel right to him. Eddie took a sip from his coffee before continuing. I also found a story about a guy who burned to death at his grease trap roadside diner. Turns out he was implicated in the death of a boy and his father. I'm not sure how much more Eddie knows. Maybe he's playing me, fishing for information. It wouldn't look good if I held anything back. I sit back, appearing shocked. Are you saying he was murdered too? Again, the local cops have their suspicions, but no proof. There were tracks from a car parked in the woods across from the diner. What were they doing there? He takes another sip from his coffee, letting his words hang in the air for a moment. 
I sigh heavily, expressing my wonderment. You think they're connected? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out an angle on that. I already pitched the idea to a publisher. May have a bestseller on my hands if I can link them together. Sounds a little far-fetched, I say. Yeah, he answers. May work better as fiction. It is a good hook. Eddie leans forward, inspiration lighting his eyes. Hey, don't you and Rebecca go to some survivor support group? I nod. That could work, he mused. I could weave a mysterious character between the chapters of the kids' deaths and their killers. He seeks out these support groups, lurks in the background, listening, learning, picking out the next target for his own private justice. Yeah, that could work, he ponders. Better than you know, I think. I mean, it's a stretch that there's any one person actually committing these revenge killings, assuming they are murders, but if I tell the stories right, people just might buy it. They'll want to buy it. Still sounds a little out there to me, I say, but I can see that the idea has a hold on him, one that he won't easily let go. 13. Rebecca and I sit across from each other at the dining room table, quietly eating the lasagna I cooked on my day off. She eats hurriedly, alternately checking her watch or the clock and shooting me a distracting grin. Are you going somewhere tonight? I ask. She takes another bite of the lasagna before she answers, biding her time while she thinks of another lie. Movies with Amy, she answers, her mouth still half full while she tears off a piece of garlic bread. She really wants to get away. I saw Eddie Hornaday. You two are becoming friends? He talked to someone he knows in the coroner's office about Lorenzo. Rebecca's eating slows. Oh, and you forgot your phone today. Amy called to apologize to reschedule the casino trip. She hopes you're feeling better. She drops her fork and wipes her mouth with her napkin, a reproachful stare fixed on me. Do you really want to talk about this? Aren't you the one who always says the fewer people who know, the better? You lied to me. I didn't tell you everything. You sliced his throat. He had it coming. Who are you? Why don't you tell me? You're the one with all the answers. Rebecca folds her arms across her chest. All I wanted was some peace, I say. And maybe... Maybe we'd fall back in love, she asks. Maybe I'd see you for the caring, loving man you always thought you were? I shake my head. I thought we could start over. From where? She asks. I know we did what we set out to do, to kill that bastard who took our son. But that doesn't erase the fact that Nick is gone. There's no coming back from that. My life ended that day. Everything since has been... She looks up at me, a look of clarity crossing her face. I'm a ghost. A spirit, damned and stuck on earth, doomed to relive that pain every day. I feel the same way, I tell her. Then you know how it felt when we killed Vitaly. You know the sense of purpose it gave me. For a brief moment, it was like coming back to life. It was wrong. No, the only thing wrong with it was it didn't last. My God, why is she making so much sense? Cooper, Dempsey, I know you felt it too. I did. I also remember that I almost lost you. But you didn't. Nick's death transformed me, transformed us. Can you honestly tell me we haven't left the world a better place by ridding it of those vile people? It's still wrong. No, it's not. It's the only thing that's right. She reaches across the table and grabs my hand. 
Do you really want to start over? Of course I do. I need this. If you want to be with me, I need this. And I need you to be a part of it. She pulls my hand toward her, and the look of defiance and purpose melts from her face. She looks vulnerable and afraid. It feels like the first honest thing she said to me since we killed Vitaly. And she's right. We can't go on like this forever, I plead. I know, she admits. She lets go of my hand and sinks back in her chair. I just need... Need what? I ask. Doing it alone was... There was something missing. It wasn't the same without you. It frightens me to think of you out there by yourself. She takes my hand again. I need you to help me with one more. I start to shake my head. Just one more, the last one, she promises. I want to believe her. She gets up from her chair and crosses around to my side of the table. That slips into my lap, takes my face in her hands, and kisses me. I do believe her. Who? Justin Berman. I draw a blank. The guy who took Barb and Brian's daughter on her last joyride. I think back. Had they ever mentioned that name? If we could just give them some peace, I really think I could try. Try? I ask. Try to start over. She finishes. Before I can reply, she kisses me again. Her lips taste of the garlic and herbs from the sauce and the lasagna. She presses her warm, soft breasts against me as she kisses me even more deeply, running her fingers through my hair. She reaches down to find me aroused by her unexpected seduction. Take me, she whispers. I slip an arm under her legs, another around her back, and stand up from the chair. She seems lighter than I remember. Her hair falls against my cheek as she buries her face in my neck, and I carry her to the bedroom. The sex is back to the pedestrian version that marked the last months of our marriage, but even that is still satisfying and comforting. She lies still on the bed, one hand resting on her naked belly, the other in a loose fist next to her face. I watch her sleeping, perched on the edge of the bed, fearful of moving and waking her. I've decided I will do what she wants. How could I not? I am a ghost, too. Betsy 1. At work, I catch up on the tasks that piled up while I was out sick. My boss reminds me that he wants to talk to me as he rushes into a meeting, promising to catch up to me after lunch. I find time to whip up another thumb drive virtual machine and start assembling information about Justin Berman. There are a few articles online about the prom night accident and several police blotter entries that mention his name. More digging uncovers some stories since the accident. One is about a scholarship award. Another details of a charity organization's efforts to promote after-school activities for at-risk teens. A third is an engagement notice. Naturally, assume these are not the same Justin Berman. I hope they are not. This is not the life of a remorseless killer, someone who got away with taking the life of the young girl before she had a chance to live it. I dig deeper. Berman is an angel. He's engaged to the daughter of an internet mogul and active in several organizations that mentor troubled kids. He speaks to high school assemblies before prom about drinking and driving. He's a real-life Mother Teresa. Shit, what have I gotten myself into? I unplug my backdoor workstation and return to my desk. It takes me through lunch to catch up on my reports and updates. There's a tap on my shoulder. Got a minute? Roger asks. Sure, I reply. My office. I lock my computer screen and follow Roger back to the corner where he has his office. 
Instead of sitting at his desk, he leads me to the informal conference area where he collapses into an armchair and directs me to the couch. He puts his feet up on the coffee table and grins. So, how would you like to have your own office? He asks. I'm surprised at first. Roger hinted at a possible path to promotion, but an office meant manager. Big leap. Anderson is leaving, moving to California to work for some startup. Operations is yours if you want it. Hell yeah, I say. It means at least a 50% bump in salary. We'll have to talk to some other candidates, but barring your committing murder or something, I'd say it's yours. I laugh at his joke. 2. We arrive at the group meeting late. Rebecca surprised me with an after-dinner flirtation that grew into a full-blown seduction. The normalcy of it is the most appealing part. It felt like we were newlyweds again. A part of me understands that this is her way of motivating me. A promise of what her life can be if I go along with her plan for one last act of vengeance. But I don't care. I suspect she knows the same things about Justin Berman that I know. It would be pointless for me to argue the possibility that he's trying to make amends for his actions, and he's undergone some redemption despite the fact that the technicalities of the juvenile courts rendered the consequences of his actions minimal at best. Barb is talking when we walk into the room. Our regular seats are empty, and we quickly and quietly sit down under a momentary glare from Barb as she kicks off the session with a story about her grandniece. She tries to hide it, but there is a tinge of sorrow in her voice that her sister has grandchildren, while she and Brian never will. As she speaks, I glance around the room. There is a new couple, one of whom I recognize. Eddie Horn. He catches my eye and tips me an almost imperceptible nod. What the hell? Is that his wife? I don't know a lot about his personal life, but I don't think he's ever lost a child. I don't think he has any children at all. He has mentioned the wife, but would she go along with posing as a grieving couple to research a book? I lean over and whisper. Eddie Horn is here, into Rebecca's ear. She looks at me, then follows my gaze to where the writer is sitting with his companion. She returns her attention to Barb, giving him no more thought than she would any other newcomer to the group. I follow her lead, even though it feels like a betrayal. I look around. Amy is there. Horn will surely recognize her from the research she's done so far. And even though Barb chased away the Portmans, Yule and Wendy are there. In fact, it is quite a full house tonight. Many of the semi-regulars have pulled out extra folding chairs and made a second circle. Barb basks in the attention, speaking a little longer than she usually would. Old Harold is parked in his corner, too watching his fingers entwine around each other with an almost autistic single-mindedness. I'm distracted when Barb asks the regulars if they have anything to share this week. She calls my name again. Um, well, things are going... Let me tell them, Rebecca interrupts. I look at her questioningly. She slips her arm through mine and turns a broad smile to the group. Some of you know that even though we were divorced when we lost Nick, his death has brought us closer together. We've been living together for quite a while, trying to get through this with each other. And, well, I think due in no small measure to the support we've gotten as part of this group, we've decided that we're going to get remarried. She doesn't say it giddily or even with any hint of excitement. She knows just how to play this room. It's not a joyous occasion. That wouldn't be appropriate. It's a milestone. Another step on the endless journey of coping with our loss. Some people react as if this is something they've been expecting for a while. Barb seems to adopt an air of resentment as if Rebecca has purposefully tried to upstage the story about her grandniece. Amy does betray a hint of excitement, 
She shares a conspiratorial look with Rebecca. I wonder if Amy knew she was going to be making this announcement, if this is another level of encouragement to ensure I go along with her plans for Justin Berman. At the point of the agenda, after we've introduced ourselves and our stories to the interloping newcomers, Barb asks if Eddie or his wife would like to say anything. He begs off sharing at this point, preferring to listen and get to know everyone first. He glances toward me. I try to convey my disapproval, but I don't think it cuts through my efforts to hide my familiarity with him. Barb offers the floor to one of the other newer couples in the group, and they confess to having a hard time dealing with the anniversary of their daughter's death to cystic fibrosis. Rebecca plays concerned empathy, her arm wound around mine and resting her head on my shoulder as tears trickle down her cheek. Barb casts a reproachful look our way, as if our announced reconciliation is an affront to the group. I wonder if it's an affront to the truth. Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyanddae.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.